Back in uh, 1999, the church I served was making room for a new worship center, and to do that, had to demolish the house that uh, my family and I had lived in for several years. And uh, it was a good time in that way. Church was growing. Uh, We didn't own the house, so that was okay. And there is a picture of me holding a brick from that house, smiling broadly, because it was a... uh, a beginning of a new chapter in that church's 100-year history. Not everybody saw it that way. Uh, years later, I heard from my youngest daughter that she was traumatized by this. At the time, she was five years old. And she said, I remember the day vividly. She said, Dad, I was standing on the sidewalk waiting for the school bus when I watched a wrecking ball smash through our kitchen. And the only home I'd ever known was destroyed before my eyes. She's a little overly dramatic, that girl. So we had different reactions to the exact same incident. I was happy. She was horrified. And I recognize that will be true of you this morning. There are some of you with smiles and feeling joyful, and others of you have experienced a wrecking ball smashed through your life. You've been disappointed, devastated, feel defeated. In fact, some of the same events that can make one person glad may leave another person sad and hurt and angry. I would imagine that there are people who didn't come to church today because of that very feeling. They were in great pain, felt life was too distressing, and didn't feel like worship. And some of you are here in spite of great pain today. The wrecking ball may have smashed through your marriage, your job, your bank account, your health, your closest friendship, and the thought of praising God is painful But I want you to know that there is a place for worship, even in the most difficult of times. Our our services tend toward more celebration and joy, and yet true worship also needs to give time to grieve and to lament and to cry. Sometimes Christian communities avoid sadness and grief But I would say that such emotions and responses belong here. Now, our series is called The Art of Worship. And each week we have been studying a psalm that instructs us in praising God. And this morning, Psalm 137 is our focus and will show us what it's like when praise is painful. How can you possibly sing when you feel cheated or empty or defeated? How can you begin to praise when you feel abandoned, lost, hopeless? How can you honor God when your enemies seem to win and bad guys mock you? That's the situation of Psalm 137. It begins with these words. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. So God's people Israel have been attacked by the Babylonians, the biggest, most powerful nation in the world at that time, and they defeated Israel and and took them captive back to Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. God's people were enslaved, and they were far from home. 
Everything they loved was ripped out from their lives. And this psalm was written about, after they'd been held captive for about 70 years. Now, now they weren't behind bars, but uh, certainly there are different kinds of of captivity. They they couldn't leave. And Babylon was a nice place, a world-class city at the time, but it wasn't home. Their home had been destroyed. That's where they wanted to be. So Israel was defeated. They were angry. They were broken. And so they wept as they remembered Zion. What's Zion? Well, as one scholar says, this word Zion compresses into one single word everything about Israel's past, present, and future, including God himself. So so Zion stands for the city of God, Jerusalem, the people of God, Israel, and the center of God's presence, the temple. So the people are thinking back on all that they had lost, and they weep. Not only do they weep, they cry, but they don't want to sing. They don't want to sing. Verse 2, There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? The Hebrew word for harp, by the way, comes from a root word which means to twang. To twang. This was an instrument of joy. This is what you played for a party, for a celebration, for a worship event. For for a happy day, you grabbed the harp. It was a praise instrument. But when you're in pain, you don't feel like twanging, and you put the harp away. And hanging up their harps on a tree reinforced this image of deep sadness and despair. And it was increased by the verbal abuse of the Babylonians. Play us some of your worship music now, they demanded. How demeaning, disrespectful. They were probably smirking and ridiculing Israel and her God. Uh, Let's hear you sing now that you're captives. Let's hear you sing now that we've beaten you and reduced your city to rubble. Sing us some tunes now. One writer says, what do you do when you come to worship and you just don't have the heart to sing? Do you put on a happy face? Do you leave your troubles at the door? You do what the psalmist did. You hang up your harp and admit to God that you don't have the heart to worship. Because notice the honesty of the psalmist. How can we sing the psalms of the Lord? Who could sing under circumstances like these? Maybe some other time, some other place, but not now. This is a time for weeping and lament. And what do you call it when you make that kind of a bold admission to God that I just don't feel like praise right now? What do you call that? You call it worship. Let me put it this way. Telling God about your pain is worship. Telling God about your pain is worship. I've had many people over the years come to me and say, how they wept all the way through a worship service for whatever reason. And often they are apologetic or sometimes embarrassed as if it's not possible to worship through your tears. But if that's where you are and that's what you're going through, that's your true self and that's what God expects and wants. That's the best worship you can offer. Now, by the way, each of us should have brothers and sisters around us with whom we can laugh and cry and celebrate and grieve. We need a community of people that can help 
shoulder each other's burdens. But while we all need those kind of relationships in our lives, let me assure you of this. Other people will get tired of hearing about your pain long before you get tired of talking about it. Other people will be anxious for you to get over your grief before you're over your grief. Other people will expect you to be all better before you're fully healed. But there is one who will never tire. There is one who's not embarrassed by your tears. Hebrews 4 says that we have one who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And his name is Jesus. Hebrews 4.16 says to approach God with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's what we have in Christ. So even though you don't feel like singing, even if you're in a place of distress and loss, even when everyone else is tired of listening to your grief, telling God about your pain is worship. Now, what you notice here in the psalm is that even though the people don't want to sing, what they do next is a song. It's not a happy song. Um, And here it is in verses 5 and 6, and the pronouns change from we, plural, to I, singular. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. So what's going on here? What does this mean? Well, here's what happens if you keep quiet about your pain to God. If you refuse to express your heart to God, there are some dangers in that. Uh, In fact, I would say there are three dangers of refusing to tell God about your pain. And let me just open them up for you from this passage, this psalm. The first danger is that you can become fake. When you're in misery, what good does it do to pretend like you're not in misery? What value is there in hiding that, especially from God? And there are some brands of Christianity that really are just a denial of reality. They they pretend like there's no such thing as depression or illness or financial need or anger or suicide or conflict or temptation. But that is not a godly perspective. Not at all. Psalm 6, David says, I am in anguish. I'm worn out from groaning. My bed is drenched with tears. That's why we like the Psalms so much. They speak to where we're at at times. David's comfort comes from knowing that the Lord has heard his weeping, his crying, and that's real life. And to ignore that is to risk becoming a phony. So what do you do when you have pain from your past or misery in the present? You pour out your grief to God. You tell him just how disappointed you are. And when you boldly admit your pain to God, that is, in fact, worship may not be the worship you would like to offer, but at that moment, it's the best worship you can offer. If you are disappointed, that's real. That's what God wants you to give him. And if you withhold it, you can risk becoming a fake. A second danger is that you can become forgetful. The psalmist here is very honest about his longing for everything that he's lost and expresses it because he doesn't want to forget. Jerusalem, just like Zion, it represents all the hopes And promises of God. Everything he had promised. His temple, his atonement, his presence, his redemption, his kingdom. They were all wrapped up in Jerusalem. And that was demolished now. And the people captive. It was in ruins hundreds of miles away. 
But now instead of forgetting, the psalmist determines to remember. No matter how bleak things looked, this was his vow to to hang on for the moment of redemption. Maybe you lost your husband years ago. You don't simply and quickly move on, do you? But you you remember the good times and the, the happy years and you mourn that loss. But that grieving is also an act of praise because you were blessed to have enjoyed those years you did have, however short they were or imperfect they were. And it also prompts you to look ahead to the promise to come, the reunion of God's people. Maybe you can identify with the man I talked to who grew up in a single-parent home and his mother sacrificed everything to give him the best chance at life. She worked long hours for little pay. She cooked and cleaned and prayed for him. She took him to church. She talked to him about Jesus. She scrimped and saved to send him to college. And he rejected all of it. He lived it up. He dropped out. He stole from her. He ridiculed her beliefs. He broke her heart. Years later, he wised up, came to Christ, and now refuses to forget the blessings he threw away and the love that he took for granted. And by refusing to forget, he appreciates all the more what God has given him. Refusing to forget what God has done in the past is worship. A third danger, if you refuse to tell God about your pain, is that you can become faithless. Faithless. The psalmist talks about your tongue being stuck to the roof of your mouth. Very difficult to sing that way. He says, may my right hand forget how to play. Lose its skill. If that, if that doesn't work, it becomes impossible to play the harp. And, and that's what the psalmist says should happen. That he not sing, that he not play, if he fails to remember. One Hebrew scholar wrote that if the singer fails to give public praise to God, his ability to play, to act, and to speak will be taken from him. If he chooses silence because remembrance is too painful, he will be permanently silenced and perpetually powerless in other words it's so important to tell God about your pain that if you don't you may lose the ability to tell him about anything else if you don't express your heart to God about the bad you might then not express your heart about the good when you choose to put on a false front instead of being honest with God about your struggles, you may well lose the ability and the desire to praise Him for the blessings as well. And I've seen that play out far too often. When God's people want to hide their pain and it's too overwhelming for them to praise God and they let that go on, not for days or, or weeks, but maybe months and then years, and eventually they drift away altogether. That, that's the danger of refusing to tell God about your pain. Um, Here comes the hardest part of this psalm. Um, And and I, as we get there, I, I want you to be thinking right now about the pain in your life. Whether it's in the past or or something miserable happening right now, can you just in your mind lift that up to God? Give that pain to God. That's worship. And now this hardest part of the psalm, which it starts out angry, and then it really becomes offensive. Start out with the anger part first. 
verse 7. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. So the psalmist names those responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem. And the Edomites, they didn't tear down anything. But what did they do? They applauded when the Babylonians did tear things down. Now why did they do that? Well, because the Edomites were Israel's longtime enemies. So when the Babylonians finally turned Jerusalem into a pile of rubble, the Edomites cheered and they shouted encouragement. And the psalm asks God to remember their words and to deal with the injustice. It's a call for anger against these Edomites for cheering the enemy. And then the psalm shifts to the worst enemy, human enemy, and that's Babylon, verse 8. Daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us, he who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. This passage is often cited by those who reject the Bible. Uh, one said, it's because of words like these that the Old Testament should be burned and the ashes thrown into the sea. Some churches refuse to read this passage at all. In his book, The Religion of the Psalms, Herman Gunkel wrote, it is utterly impossible for us to use this in Christian worship. I find it interesting that songs have been written in our day on the first half of Psalm 137, but don't include these words in the lyrics. Singing about killing babies is hard to imagine. What's the point? Should we just pretend like these words are not there? In context, actually they're not all that surprising because it's a call for God to do to the Babylonians what the Babylonians had done to them. Just as Israel's babies had been brutalized and killed, they were praying, they were singing, may the same thing happen to the perpetrators. John Kessler says that the psalm wants what every parent whose child has been victimized wants. It's the cry of the mother whose child has been sexually molested. It's the implicit desire of all those who question God's existence because of the brutal genocide of Rwanda or Darfur. Uh, those who say, if God exists, how can he let such things happen? It's the voice that says, justice must be served. Somebody needs to pay. And as disturbing as they are, these are words of brutal, painful honesty. Because the psalmist's cry is often our cry too. Kessler says, whenever we feel we've been cheated, when we are slandered, when the boss takes credit for our work or blames us for his failure, when our spouse squanders the love owed to us on someone else, this is our heart's cry. These words bother us because we know this is exactly what we would say if we were in that situation. See, this, these words are a prayer spoken to God himself, and that disturbs us. When it says, Repay, that, that verb repay, is never used of human justice elsewhere. It's only used of God's vengeance. So this call is for God to avenge atrocities. And that brings us to another key truth in this passage. And that is that waiting for God's justice is worship. Waiting for Him to, to bring justice and vengeance is worship. Victor Montalvo, pastor's a church just blocks away from where Trayvon Martin was killed 
in Sanford, Florida, just a few years ago to remind you, Trayvon Martin was killed by George Zimmerman, uh, and a jury then found George Zimmerman not guilty. Zimmerman's life has since spun completely out of control. But here this pastor just blocks away after the verdict came that uh, George Zimmerman was not guilty. He, he said this, Did the jury make the right call? I just don't know. Did it all happen the way the trial painted it? We'll never know. And that's terribly unsettling. It's unsettling because we want to close the book. We want answers. We live in a world full of beauty and pain. And when it's beautiful, it's like a glimpse of heaven. When it's painful, it's like the bowels of hell. When things go awry, we want someone to blame. We want to protect all our pain and project all our pain and the foulness of our sin upon someone or something. And Victor goes on to say that ultimate answers are only found in Jesus. But right now, justice is elusive. And the cry for justice is the sound of Psalm 137. This is a prayer for God's vengeance upon those who are responsible for his misery. And it blesses the avenger. When it says, happy is he who avenges this, it, it, it should read, blessed is he. These are words of praise and blessing for the one who repays horrific wrongs. And this psalm recognizes that the avenger is God himself. This psalm reflects how we feel when evil has ripped our lives to shreds. And that's what troubles us about this psalm. We know this is exactly how we would pray given these circumstances, just as surely as we know we dare not pray it. Indeed, there's only one who could have dared to pray these words without fearing the consequences, but one who in his darkest moment chose to pray a very different prayer. Jesus Christ, who had not only the power but the right to call legions of angels to avenge him, instead prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. How do we explain this? It is because Jesus alone understood what justice requires. What justice requires, Jesus alone provides. His is the only blood price that justice accepts. And do you know what you call it when you come into God's presence so broken? by the ways others have sinned against you, that all you want from God is payback, but instead you pray something different because you are covered by the blood of Jesus. What do you call it when you bless those who curse you? When you pray for those who mistreat you? Well, you call it a miracle. You call it grace. You call it mercy. And you call it worship. Wrong has been done to you. And wrong will continue to be done. Evil is occurring across this planet. So how can you worship in the face of all that wickedness and humanity? Cry out for God to bring justice. And wait. Romans 12.19 tells us not to take revenge, but to allow God to repay. Zephaniah 3.8, there the Lord says, Wait for me. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Waiting for God's justice is worship. So it's, it's on this terrible note of vengeance that the psalm ends. Uh, and and it's, it's hard to comprehend. We're happy as he who repays you for what you've done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. That's it. That's the end of the song. There's nothing after that. Imagine singing this in the temple of ancient Israel. What a dreadful, violent final verse. 
And the fact that it stops there is significant. This prayer, this expression of worship ends without a word from God himself. It pleads with God to bring judgment, and God is silent. Doesn't that happen to you sometimes? Your prayers go unanswered. Your worship seems to bring no response from God. This psalm cries out for God to destroy, and God says nothing, and He does nothing. Speaking praise born out of intense pain, this call is, is for the enemies to be have their babies crushed against the rocks. And God takes no action. And God gives no answer for more than 500 years. And when God responded, it was not by killing babies, but by sending a baby. His son Jesus came into the world to heal it of its sin and violence and hate and revenge. The perfect Son of God was slaughtered on the cross. His lifeblood poured out for the sin of the world so that all who put their trust in Him would become sons and daughters of the living God and have the promise of forgiveness and hope and ultimate justice. Many of you have been mistreated or wounded or grieving. And you ask, how do I get over this? When will the hurt go away? I don't know exactly. But your anguish does not have to be an obstacle in connecting with God. When the wrecking ball smashes through your life, you don't have to pretend that it didn't happen. Because telling God about your pain and then waiting for His justice is worship. And that is what we do here today. We come together to bring God our true selves. And to know that in and of ourselves, we are not worthy of His grace and love and mercy. We only deserve His punishment. And yet through Jesus Christ, we say thanks be to God who settles all things and in whose hands we can rest. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for the promise of Your forgiveness and peace and blessing in the midst of hurt and pain and failure and sin and wrong and evil. Through Jesus, we can say it is well with our soul. May we know that with assurance today, not because we are worthy, but because you are worthy. We bring this to you in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.